The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Good morning, Refuge Church. Happy Mother's Day. We're going to talk about suffering today a little bit, but I'm hoping that doesn't make moms in here feel that their life is harder. So, guys, um, just so you know, so everyone here, we actually... As the, as the Refuge Church have gotten gifts for all moms in attendance, whether young, old, and different, if you are a mother, could you raise your hand? We have this beautiful handcrafted soap from the Mantle Soaping, Soaping Company. Um, Harley Thomas, Daryl Thomas's wife, made these. And so this is our gift for all moms today. If you're a mom, can you just raise your hand? We'd like to deliver those. I got my good friend Wyvern handing those out. I feel like I should just. <laughs> they actually look like delicious pieces of cake. It's kind of cool. So moms, if you come next Sunday and you don't smell good, I might comment on it. I'm totally kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you so much that you do not give up on us. Father, that you love us. God, and that is not dependent on who we are or what we've done whose we are, God, that you love us because we are yours. God, forgive us when we do not take enough time to acknowledge you. Forgive us when we give our first fruits and our attention to things that are meaningless, God, that can't love us back. Forgive us when we think that what we know for our life is more important than what you know for our lives. God, we thank you that you are nothing like us. And we pray, Father, that we would grow in a deeper understanding of you, that we would love you, 
And that would lead to obedience to you, Father. That when we act, when we do things, God, it's coming from a place of gratitude because you set us free because of freedom, Lord, that we could freely love and worship you. And I pray that we would experience that in our daily lives. We pray that you would accept um, this prayer of confession and that you would restore us to be people who focus on you and who love you and desire you above all things. Above all, Father. Amen. So for those of you that are joining us this morning, we're about a month in our sermon series, Joy in the Middle. And if you haven't heard the other three sermons, I encourage you to go back and listen to it at the Refuge Church podcast or on our Facebook account. And this is our intro. What are you in the middle of right now? The book of Philippians was written from a prison cell. Paul's life probably looked like it had reached a dead end. But that is not how Paul sees his life. Paul is full of joy right in the middle of a terrible situation. Paul has a happy heart. Is it hard for you to be happy in the middle of the mess of life? In this sermon series, we will learn the secret of Christian joy in the middle of whatever life throws at you. So in preparation for this morning, I was reading an article in the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. I read a story about a man named Themistocles. That's a hard name to pronounce, and I'm probably not pronouncing it right. He's from Tanzania. He's from a town that is close to the Ugandan border. And many of the people in that town were Christians. But there were also, because of where they were located, Islamic extremists that had influence over the area. Themistocles wasn't always a believer. He was a Christian by name only. And when he got married, he married a woman named Deborah, who was a Muslim by name only. But shortly after their marriage, they were invited to go to church by a local pastor, a worship service at a Christian church, and it was raining that day, but they decided to keep their commitment, and they went. And during that experience, they gave their hearts over to Jesus, believing that he was their Savior. And not long after they were saved, he had went to another church service where he had become convicted about prayer and the importance of praying and being in prayer. And so he joined a local prayer ministry where they would pray for six months every single day at their local church all through the night. There would be one person praying and another person that would be sleeping. Leading up to this event, he had had this nightmare of where he saw a body lying under a, a white um, blanket. And so he thought, as he was talking to a pastor, maybe it was an upcoming funeral where it was going to bring Muslim people and Christian people together to mourn for this person. And they thought it was strange because the pastor also had the same dream. However, not long after this experience, it was Themistocles' turn to go and pray at the local church. 
And it was his turn to sleep. So his co-laborer, the other person that was praying with him, I think it's Dionysus or whatever, was praying. And Themistocles was awoken from his sleep. And when he was awoken, he thought he was having another bad dream because he saw this bright light, kind of like the dream that he had before. But what he didn't realize was that he wasn't dreaming. And actually the bright light was a headlamp of an Islamic extremist wielding a machete over the top of him. And he's like trying to stop it from slashing him. And he's getting slashed the entire time. He suffers nine incredible slashes along his legs, along his arms. He has a severed hand and uh, disfigured fingers from this. A voice says, grab a rock. He grabs a rock. He throws it. It wards the attackers off. He collapses because of his injuries, but he also notices before that his friend had been killed. A woman finds him, helps him receive medical attention. And when that happens, early on in his hospitalization, when he goes to the hospital, people were bringing him food and drinks and things like that. Um, But he was looking for ways, even in that thing that happened, to thank God for provision, which I find remarkable because that's where his mind went. He ends up giving the plot of land that he owns to the local church that they could plant another church for the advancement of the gospel. And then he commits himself to learn about the Muslim faith so that he can evangelize them to show them the love the pastor that had showed him before that they could experience the same thing. And so when asked, because as he would walk through town, he would see the people that were attacking him, and they knew that he was the one that they attacked, you know, about how he thought about that, and he said, I forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's like Jesus in the face of his mockers, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think... It made me think so many different things. Like, how could a man who had a friend killed was brutally attacked and still under threat for his own safety think, forgive them? How could he give his land away? How could he want to learn about this faith that attacked him? I think he learned how to suffer well. I think he knew and understood what it meant to suffer and I think we see something similar this morning in Philippians 1, 27 through 30. And I want you to think about how we can become people that are more like Themistocles. So how do we suffer well? That's the big question. And the big idea is that we suffer well when we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's look at our passage. So whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same suffering or the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And I really love 
this passage because you see in the beginning, he talks about whether I see you or whether I hear. And then in the end, he also says, like you have seen me suffer or struggle and you have heard now. It's kind of like this mutual thing taking place, right? So you got to remember that Paul, when he was writing this, he was writing this letter from a prison cell. The Philippians have witnessed Paul's suffering and have been hearing about his suffering. And it's almost like Paul's saying, I'm going to teach you how to suffer well. And I believe this is kind of a framework that he's setting up. And the first part of this framework is that first verse. Notice in verse 27, it says, whatever happens. And I was kind of like, yeah, whatever happens, all these things that could happen in our lives, right? But what happened there was, as I looked it up and I was looking at other translations, I found that it also renders as, if only, or just one thing. And my personal favorite was, above all. So what Paul is trying to convey to the Philippian church is that what he's about to tell them is of utmost importance. Above all, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul knew the audience that he was writing to. The Philippians were people in a Roman colony. So it should not surprise us that they prided themselves on looking, acting, and living like Rome. If we were to have visited it would have reminded us of Rome. We would have said, there's definitely Roman influence here. So Paul, knowing that about his audience, chooses to use the word conduct on purpose. Conduct is translated from the Greek word, and I do not know Greek, but this is paletasthei which comes from the root word polis or city. He's talking about living like people that belong from a specific place. He knew that they would understand that. It was almost like he was challenging their way of living and the way they understood how to live. So while these people were living in a Roman colony, they had been adopted as believers into another kingdom under another king, King Jesus. Have you ever thought about how people act when they come from a certain place? You guys know I'm not from here. I'm proud of my heritage. I'm like, I love chicken wings. I love the future Super Bowl winning Buffalo Bills. You guys know I'm from upstate New York. You see it. When you see me, you see a mini representation of upstate New York. And that's not an accident. That's who I am. Partly. And Jesus... Right When he came into our lives, that's who we are. So when we are living like kingdom citizens here on earth, it will look like King Jesus. And people will see us and recognize him in the kingdom. Amen. Paul is saying in the same way, when those around you see you, they see the kingdom you represent. Just like people see Rome when they look at the Roman colony, Philippi, when they see you, they see Jesus. 
Recently, I read churches are little outposts for the kingdom of God. Isn't that cool? Above all, keep your citizenship before you. Be led by Jesus, his kingship, his values, the way you see Jesus operate in scripture. Do the same things. If Jesus doesn't do it, pray before you do it. Compassion, forgiveness, grace, humility, love, perseverance. A lot of people are like, but that's weak. No, it's the way of Jesus. When you do this, the world gets a glimpse of God and what he values. And this is how Paul starts to lay this framework. How do I live a life worthy? As citizens of heaven, imitating King Jesus. So then if we understand that, how can we suffer well? And I think in this passage, he shows us three things specifically. Two of them involve working together, and I hope that doesn't make you nervous, because a lot of times we like to work alone. And then the last is an outcome that will happen if you can do the two that I say before really well. One, we need to stand firm in one spirit. Paul was an environmental scientist. I was telling you guys that before. He was using specific words. He was talking to a specific audience. He was grabbing their attention in a way that they would understand it. He knew that these were, these were people of a Roman colony. And remember, we talked about this before. They were ex-Roman soldiers. And so they had migrated there, right? So that they could receive the benefits of their hard work by experiencing probably lower taxes and some luxuries that come from Rome being taken care of. But Paul, he's speaking to them like they would understand. Paul's tone here is not passive. He sounds more like a military commander. It's like he said, now that you know whose you are as a group, it's time for you to operate out of that identity together. Stand firm in one spirit. To be a soldier means that you are a part of something bigger. The only time you see soldiers operating alone is when they go to the high school to recruit people. Because nobody wants to do that. When soldiers are sent to the battlefield, they send them in droves together. Why? Because there's strength in numbers. The Bible says that. Where two or more come together. They can fight and support each other. Fight for and support each other. God never planned for your suffering to be alone. Isn't it much easier to stand when someone's standing next to you? How about the people that were bringing meals and water and nutrients and things like that to Themistocles? This made me think of children, kind of how soldiers, the confidence they have, right? They receive an order and then they stand, right? And, and what I was thinking about was like this confidence that comes with that, right? And it made me think of children. Have you ever seen a child that says something like, well, my dad told me so. They are not standing in their own power. They are standing in the power of the backing of their father or mother or guardian. And they're very confident 
I mean, they will stand there and they will tell you, well, my dad said I can. I told you to stop jumping up. My dad said I can. Right? And it drives us nuts. But it's that confidence. It's that same confidence together that these believers, right, they're standing in the power provided for them by Jesus. And as they do that together as a group, they become stronger and they're standing together. They aren't alone. But this is like that power because we, as one body of believers, are standing under the power of God. Our confidence, whether alone or with someone else, comes from the backing of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. I don't have that for you up here. But it says this, Now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ, Set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. We already know the outcome of every single situation we are in because it has been given to us. It is ultimate victory. So even when those things are coming in and they're crushing you and that person standing next to you and you're learning to stand firm together, you are standing in the confidence provided by Christ and his death. It's like Themistocles who suffered that brutal attack. He knew it hurt and he was aware of the damage. He knew that. That was not, not real. And I'm not trying to downplay that. But what he understood and where his mind was focused was on the victory that had already happened. So he was acting out of a confidence that allowed him to stand firm, to give away his land, to learn a different type of way of evangelism. We need to stand firm in that way, together. Our heels dug into the ground like a soldier, that people can't move, confident in the victory that we have from Jesus. And that leads us to the second thing, this together thing. We need to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. The first thing involves standing in, in that, right? In one spirit, the second requires more of an action. The church in Philippi was being attacked for their belief in Jesus, and Paul was readying them to stand. But he takes it a step further and says, work together for a common purpose. This common purpose is the advancement of the gospel. The idea of working, like I said earlier, might make some of you uncomfortable, but the truth is that in Jesus' kingdom, we need each other. And that is why we are all Members of but one body with his headship. This isn't limited to just the people here. This is our county, our state, our nation, our world, anyone who professes the name of Jesus. We need each other. And together, as we are working and living out the gospel, together, striving, people see the kingdom because it becomes illuminated to them. The word striving here means to contend, to fight, side by side, or working together. The word striving and contending should make us think of like a sports team. What are sports teams made up of? Athletes. So the first thing he wanted us to notice was that we need to be like soldiers standing firm. And now he's like, now you got to be an athlete, Right? Athletes have conditioned themselves to be prepared to fight and work together for a common interest in a team. 
My wife and I have recently become really huge fans of basketball. We're watching the playoffs all the time right now. Yeah, that too, March Madness. I love that. Our, our second oldest daughter, Sydney, plays basketball. And the more we watch it, the more we understand and enjoy it. I mean, a lot of us, when we compete, we want to win. We want the accolades that come with that. We get excited. We want the rah-rah. We want it to be about us. I wanted my daughter to score every point that her team scored. But the more that I realized that, I started to realize there's a beauty in teamwork and contribution. Because as I watched the sport and I started to see her getting a rebound or making an epic pass or blocking a shot and setting someone else up for a layup, I realized she was doing good in that. And that was for a team win, not only for herself. And I could say, man, that was an excellent pass, Sid. You are a wonderful basketball player, and you are on a really great team. I went from being excited that she was scoring 12 points a game to being excited that Sid had learned how to do other things to make others around her better. She became a contributor, a piece of it, not the center stage. When we work together, everyone wins and no one is left behind. When we learn to strive together as Christians, we see others doing well and we cheer them on. And when they're not doing well, we should go back and help them along. So we win together. This will bring them closer to God. This brings attention to his kingdom. We become contributors, not for our own glory, but the advancement of the gospel. When we learn to, to strive together, we make up a high-powered offense and a scary defense that becomes unpressurable. And it doesn't always feel good. A role change can seem scary. But how much stronger does the team look? How much more confidence now exists in the body? So those changes don't take place overnight. Anybody that's an athlete can tell you that. We need to put in work and we need to condition ourselves to do that. We soon, we soon learn what it's like to play offense, but more importantly, we, we know when it's time to play defense. When we strive together for one faith, skills and techniques fall out of focus and we focus on how those differences can work together. We stop seeing differences in theology and personal preferences as enemies and people that believe those things as enemies. We start seeing them as teammates and co-laborers and we begin to cheer each other on and make up where there is lack. When we know Christ and are living by his values, we play by his rules. 2 Timothy 2.5 says, Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. When we are living in a manner worthy of the gospel, we are playing by King Jesus' rules and we're showing others how to do it too.
So we need to stand firm in one spirit. We need to strive together in one faith. And that will lead us to the third thing that Paul points out. And this is kind of this, this um, changing of patterns for a lot of us. I mean, we need to stop being afraid of what opposes us without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. When we have stood together in one spirit and have begun striving together in one faith, we start to realize that what we fear looks more like an opportunity. We all here have fears. Some of them are human fears of other people. Some of them are fears of other things. I have many fears. Some of them are rational. There are a lot of them that are irrational. I have a fear of elevators. When I was in Chicago with my wife just a couple weekends ago, I shut the door of an elevator. I was by myself. I had been dreading this moment for a long time. The door shut. I was enclosed in a metal casket. I looked like this. I had already hit the button and it wasn't moving. And I go, oh man, this is really happening right now. You know, I was freaking out. And... Um, I was so scared. I felt helpless, helpless and afraid. And I was thinking of, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And it didn't move for 10 minutes, 10 minutes. And I was like, I got up to the room and I was like talking to Suzanne like this. I was like, you won't believe what happened to me. It's traumatizing. But anyways, um, what I hadn't thought about during that time was that I had a cell phone in my pocket, right? I also had a help button pages to front desk. I hadn't been without food. I didn't have a medical condition. I had no reason to be afraid. It's kind of like when we realize the source of our strength, the things that we fear most start to dissipate. Paul knew this as he was writing from the jail cell. He had been beaten and thrown in prison he knew what it was like to suffer. Paul is a perfect example of what can happen, but Paul maintained his joy. He was aware of the body around him, the body he thanked continuously like three weeks ago in our first sermon. He was praying for them because they cared for him. He was so Christ conscious. It was the Christ dominating thinking that we talked about. He soon found out that this scary situation was all for the advancement of the gospel. Paul knew that something even greater was coming from the scary situation he was in. People were hearing and experiencing the kingdom he represented. So the fear and worry that oftentimes plagues us was gone. And these people had a lot to fear because they were being persecuted for their faith. Like, because of their belief in Jesus, they were being imprisoned, they were being killed. And what he's saying is, hold on, above all, live a life manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because the scariest thing, when you know Jesus, it's not as scary. God was going to accomplish his desires through Paul. It's the same way that Jesus accepted the pain and torment of the cross. It was this obedience, this greater driving factor. It made me think of that verse where it's like, why do you fear man who can only destroy the body 
when you should be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and soul in hell. And what he wasn't talking about was like living in a rock afraid of God. He was talking about a reverential fear. He was saying, you know, when you consider the ways of God and you live like God, when you're, when you're living like the son Jesus and you're imitating him, right? Like, you don't have to be afraid. What if the pain and struggle that you experienced led to the advancement of the gospel and people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus? Have you ever thought that during your greatest suffering that God might be doing something much greater than the fear or pain you are experiencing? Would everything you have experienced in your suffering been worth it if that was the case? Paul says, yes! Live as a citizen of heaven and draw attention to your father. If we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, then we come to understand verse 29 in a Similar light that Paul saw it, right? That God grants us not only the gift of belief, but also the gift of suffering. Because in suffering, there's an opportunity. Because when you do all three things that we talked about earlier, what's really happening is it's showing the world around you that there is truth and validity to the gospel that you prescribe to. And that the gospel that they're prescribing to is dead. A gospel without Jesus is no true gospel. we do not suffer so that we feel bad and become paralyzed. I am speaking to myself because I can become paralyzed. We suffer to show the power of the kingdom we are a part of. When we accept suffering as a gift, we learn to respond like Themistocles in the face of his attackers. Then the world around starts to see us more as a peculiar people. Somebody they're interested in. Somebody they're going to ask questions about. And we then become people that can only see that the acceptable response is that we live a life worthy of Christ. The world starts to wonder, why didn't they retaliate? Why didn't they give them a piece of their mind or several? Why didn't they sue that person? Why is there still joy there? How could something that bad happen to somebody and they still continue to serve? They still continue to help others? They still continue to be devoted to God. How are they still being, living, and moving? How can they face that? That's the question the world's going to start to ask. And I was considering Romans 5, 3 through 5. It says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering does something. And we suffer well when we live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. So what do we do with that? Two things. We can learn to stand firm. Right? We're going to stand firm. If we've been flippity-floppy the last few years, stop being that. Stand firm. Hold on to the confidence you have in Christ. Be like that rebellious kid. Well, my father says so. 
How do you know that it's going to turn out okay? Because my father said so. That's how I know. And you can't tell me otherwise because the truth is right here. Two, strive together. We all have different gift days. We all can help each other. When we all work together in different ways, his kingdom is elevated. They see where we're coming from. There's worth in the gospel. So above all, this morning, I want you to remember that you are a citizen of heaven and when you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, you too can learn how to suffer well. Pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to know you, God, that you loved us so much that you gave us the gift of salvation and God, also the gift of suffering. God, help us to be more like you in our moments of suffering. God, help us to see those as opportunities. Help us to stand firm with one another, next to each other, encouraging each other. Help us to strive together. When we see our brother and sister weak, God, that we would not make comments and criticize, but that we would walk alongside them and we would help them to where they need to be. us to have that love that you had that didn't criticize us. God, I pray that you would give us the reminder that you are the confidence in our moments of fear. In your name, amen. So this morning, I want to invite you guys to take communion. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he was sitting with a group of friends, 12 of them, and uh, he said, as he took the loaf of bread, he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. And he broke it and he handed it out. And he said, when you eat it, do this to remember me. And then he said, in the same way, as he took the cup, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that was um, provided by my shedding of my blood. And when you drink it, you're proclaiming my coming kingdom until I return. Thank you, guys.